Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Herb Podcast, a place of information and inspiration for the home herbalist. I'm Bridget Doherty of the Solidago School of Herbalism, coming to you from a bridged island on the coast of Maine. In today's show, I'm talking about chaga mushroom and a bit about concepts around sustainable foraging. Before we get started, I want you to know that I'm not a doctor, nor do I diagnose or treat people. What I share is based on my own experience and what I've learned from my mentors, including the plants themselves. Ultimately, I want you to be empowered in seeking and achieving your own version of optimum health. I want you to be inspired to connect and relate to the common plants that grow all around you. Together, let's make home herbalism be as common in the everyday household as cooking a healthy meal. Now, without further ado, let's have some fun and dig in. going back and forth about wanting to do a podcast episode about chaga and then thinking, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't. And that mostly comes from I really don't want to promote the use of chaga because I think it is very overused. And that's what I want to talk about today. But I also feel like it is in such heavy use that it is important to talk about because it's important to talk about the sustainability issues of this mushroom, this herb, this medicinal mushroom. And so I want you to know right from the get-go that I am not promoting um, the medicinal use and wild harvest of chaga unless it's done properly and in really like necessary circumstances. So I'm going to get into that. But I will say that it really irks me to see how common chaga has been has been in American herbalism and just common everyday herbal medicine, whether it's herbalism or just people looking for the next great superfood. And I'm going to get into, um, I'm going to talk about what chaga is and its life cycle, um, how it's harvested, how to sustainably harvest it, concepts that we need to think about when we are working with all plants and mushrooms, um, but also especially ones that are foraged. And just generally, you know, how can we be in better relationship with this mushroom so that it lasts on this planet and that we have access to it when we most need it. So let's get into it. I also want to say, I guess before I get into it, is um, a couple oldie but goodie podcasts, uh, episode seven and episode eight, I go over some wild crafting, wild harvesting concepts and sustainable foraging. I think that those are really important to readdress every spring uh, and early summer as we really start diving into harvesting plants, foraging, and just going out in nature and being observers of the mushroom and plant kingdoms. And so 
I highly suggest checking out those episodes and just really thinking about plant populations in a very large picture and view. So chaga is, it's a, it's a part of a mushroom. So the mushroom itself, the um, scientific name is Ona, Ono, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I know how to pronounce this. Oh no, I nonotus, okay, I nonotus oblicus, and that is the name of, the scientific name of the mushroom. Now, there are different um, life stages of this mushroom, and one of those life stages is called chaga, which is a word that is derived from the Russian name of this mushroom. And the chaga is the sterile conch or tree canker um, that comes off of the tree. So chaga mushroom, so I'm going to refer to chaga mushroom as kind of like the whole mushroom, but we have to understand that the chaga that is harvested and worked with is this like woody growth that comes off of the birch. Usually it's a birch tree, especially the ones that are harvested medicinally. There are other trees that it grows on, but the birch chaga seems to have, um, more medicinal constituents to it, and we'll get into that. The mushroom itself, the chaga part of the mushroom itself, is a sterile fungus conch, or a tree canker. So let's get into some of these words. So the conch, a conch is usually a spore-producing fruiting structure of a fungus um, that is found growing on tree trunks and limbs. So like... um, birch polypore, like a lot of these polypores or the shelf fungus that you see growing on the sides of trees are conchs. However, those usually produce spores, which are the fruiting body and spread, you know, baby, baby mushrooms around. But the chaga conch does not produce spores. Okay, it's not a fruiting body. It does not have any reproductive structure to it. And so conchs are usually found on tree trunks and limbs, stumps, fallen logs, even on structural lumber. The main body of the fungus is called the mycelium, and that's kind of that the conch is attached to. And that has long filaments that penetrate and inhabit the wood of the tree. So it's like the mycelium. When we think of mushrooms that grow in the ground or out of the ground or out of like leaf mold and, you know, plant waste that is on the forest surface, then the mycelium goes into the ground and that's like the main part of the mushroom and then the mycelium will like send up the fruiting body which is the mushroom that we harvest and eat usually and or prepare medicinally and then that um, fruiting body is what spreads more mushroom spores around that then creates more mycelium so the mycelium is like the forever part of the mushroom. It's like the main body of the mushroom, even though it's kind of long and stringy and just kind of, it's what eats, you know, it's what sources minerals and so much more. They do so much more than that for the environment and for the forests and plant communication and all of that, which I'd love to do an episode on at some point. But getting back to um, the conch mushrooms, so the mycelium in the conch mushrooms Instead of penetrating into the soil, they penetrate into the tree and get their nutrients from the tree itself. And then they produce the fruiting body that comes out of the tree. And it's usually a perennial. So it like regrows every growing season and then kind of goes dormant. And you can often see the lines of growth. So you'll see over time they get bigger and bigger. And that's the same with the chaga conch as well is it's perennial, and it gets bigger and bigger over time. So it could be considered, the conch um, 
could be considered a pathogen to some degree. A pathogen is a bacteria, virus, or other microorganism that causes disease. And so there, you know, some of these conks can like slowly deteriorate the health of a tree and eventually kill it. It's not a quick thing, you know, and usually they find an entrance point, which is like a wound in the tree or the tree's already dead and rotting, but still standing on the ground. So different conch mushrooms act differently, but I'm going to get back to chaga specifically. So here we have chaga and let's get into the life cycle of it. So we understand it a little bit more. You have a birch, when we're going to talk about the birch chaga, but there are, like I said, this can happen to other trees as well, but birch is the most common. So we have a birch tree and it has a wound on it. And the wound happened like either a branch fell off or it got nicked by something or, you know, there is a injury to the bark. So that's the entrance point. And a chaga spore that is in the air, and we'll talk about how that spore gets in the air, but the air, the chaga spore lands amazingly on the wound of the birch and then um, begins to take hold. And it grows mycelium, and that mycelium penetrates into the heartwood of the tree to get nutrients. And as it does that, it also starts growing out of the tree, um, it, it in a sense is becoming part of the tree. So like the chaga conch contains a lot of the material that also makes up the birch tree. So it's very woody and very hard. And it has a lot of chemistry that is also found in birch trees and birch bark itself. So it, so it's not only the mycelium's penetrating into the tree, but as it grows and expands, it kind of bubbles out. You could say bubbles, but it you know kind of slowly grows out of the tree in this hard, woody canker is what it's called. Which is a canker is another word for basically like a scab almost on a tree. So that is what is called chaga, that canker, that growth that is, it's kind of part birch tree. It does have mycelium in it, um, which is the part of this mushroom as well. So once that's growing, then it, you know, as it ages, it slowly eats the core of the tree. Some people think that the chaga is killing the tree, which it probably is on the long term. But also, like, I think that it is, it might protect the tree to some degree, like that wound could also be an access point for other more harmful pathogens. So in some way, it's like enclosing the wound. Because a chaga can live and ideally will live for like 20 years before it's at its full maturity. So that's like a long time if it's killing the tree, but it's actually like the tree has to still be alive for the chaga to be alive. So it's it's not an immediate kill. So there's, there's a fine line. And really, we don't know 100% a lot about chaga. It's still a little bit of a, mis- a mystery. So after, you know, ideally, like 15 or 20 years, when the chaga reach, reaches its maturity, um, the tree will eventually die. So the chaga matures, and the tree dies, and the tree falls over. And at that point, the chaga no longer has food from the tree, right? That mushroom no longer has food from the tree. And so it says, well, I guess it's time to spread my seed, right? Spread the spores. And so it changes and that conch might fall off and just be kind of become soil again. And then the fruiting body starts to develop and the fruiting body is found in these kind of 
tunnels that go under the bark and you don't see it for the first as it's growing. And it can take one to two years of that tree being dead and on the ground while this fruiting body is slowly maturing under the bark of that tree. And then once the fruiting body is mature, it'll be like within one or two days, then the birch bark will open up and the spores will go shooting out of the birch bark and it will only do that for like one or two days. And so it's really hard to see. And so it's a little bit of this like unknown. And then I guess like all this, what the spores are in um, is really yummy food, probably loaded in polysaccharides, which are like multi-chain sugars that all mushrooms contain tons of, that insects love. And so the insects just have a field day. And within a couple days, like there's no more sign of any of the chaga or any of the spores. And those insects can also carry the spores around um, to help potentially reseed, um, you know, other injured birch trees if they just happen to find one and land with the spores on them like on the wound of a birch tree and i've heard that maybe you know this this um fruiting part the sporulation can happen you know multiple times within the time that the tree is rotting and deteriorating into the ground so you might not only have like one chance per tree you might have a couple chances but again it's it's kind of hard to really nail down the information or at least it was for me so the short of the long of this is this is a very slow growing you know we're talking 20 year maturity time or however long it takes the, a birch tree to die, um, and then it takes another couple years for that cha- for that one chaga mushroom to then create babies. And it's not like you're gonna get it's it's different in that you know for mushrooms that grow on the ground and in the soil and spread mycelium like roots all throughout the ground and can have multiple fruiting bodies you know, all attached to one mycelium web. You really only get one chaga per tree, right? One chaga conch per tree. So when we really look at this, it's very, you know, plants and mushrooms that have this type of a life cycle are really hard to maintain sustainable populations if we're going to be feeding the masses with them. It's just that alone, in my mind, makes them really necessary to protect because it's, it's their whole life cycle is very tenuous, if you, you know. So not only that, but then where do we find chaga mushrooms? We find chaga mushrooms in northern boreal birch forests. Northern Maine and like northern Minnesota, like the northern regions of the United States, cold, they get cold winters. And then Canada, northern Canada, Siberia, Russia, the Ukraine. Um, I have heard of some in France, Finland. I mean, there's, you know, some places in Europe, some pockets. But we're going to, you know, they're going to be northern places. They're going to be in forests. And a lot of times it's not easily to access. Not only is it in forests in like really northern climates and territories, but it's also in trees that are tall, right? So to harvest the chaga, you have to harvest it from a living birch tree. And who knows where the wound was? Maybe it's going to be low on the tree that's easy to access, but maybe it's going to be way high up on the tree. And where some people, scrupulous people might say, or not so scrupulous people might say, we're just going to cut down the tree so we can get that chaga conch. 
because we're not going to go climbing up there. <laughs> so <clears throat> there's all kinds of, you know, issues. And now, I mean, really the majority from my understanding of sourcing chaga for the masses, um, for the for the large commercial markets, a lot of the chaga comes from Russia and the Russian forests. And when we start having wars and, you know, all kinds of sanctions on countries, then like, it's very possible that we're not going to be importing chaga from Russia. I don't really know the politics of that, but I could see that possibly becoming an issue. So, or war-torn countries like the Ukraine. I mean, we're probably not going to be getting chaga mushrooms from the Ukraine anytime soon, unfortunately. But this is what happens when we become reliant on a really obscure medicinal herb or mushroom that grows in faraway places. And where we, if we become reliant on it, and then all of a sudden this, uh, something happens to the supply chain, any number of things, it could be a pandemic, it could be a war, it could be political reasons. Um, but now we're kind of out of luck. So, you know, you see, when I was doing research for this podcast, because it's so hard for me, honestly, to wrap my mind around the whole life cycle of the chaga. So I had to do a lot of, you know, re refreshing my memory and really looking at what people were saying online. And really, when you start searching online for information about chaga, it's almost all there's a little bit from some university sources, um, a little bit of scientific information, but almost all of the information that's easy to access for the common person that's doing research on chaga is all from people who are selling it. And so they obviously are going to have a very skewed perspective. And a lot of these people are like, oh, yeah, it's sustainable. It's very sustainably harvested. Russia has tons of chaga. Don't worry about it, you know. Or, you know, we definitely harvest it sustainably. So we know what we're doing in our little neck of the woods. But because we know that the sustainability of chaga is an issue, it is addressed by a lot of people, but a lot of people that are selling chaga are like, oh, yeah, no, it's sustainable. We're doing it right. You know, and I, I wonder, I don't know how trustworthy it is when we get like herbal um, information online, especially from people who are selling the product that they're talking about. So in a minute, I'm going to get going to touch on that issue. And then I want to talk more about, you know, why, what is this chaga trend and foraging culture? What are some sustainable practices? How do we get the right information? Um, and how do we work with the chaga? And what are some other options that we could have um, instead of chaga. So a lot, a lot to get into. But first, I want to take a quick break and talk about Noom. Noom uses the latest in behavioral science to empower people to take control of their health for good through a combination of psychology, technology, and human coaching on their platform to help millions of users meet their personal health and wellness goals. And so I've been sharing with you over the past few weeks or month or two about working with Noom. Gosh, I feel like I started with Noom probably about a month ago. And um for me, it's been a positive experience. I had a weight loss goal, like I wanted to lose some winter weight. And I'm happy to say that I have lost 10 pounds in a month. And I'm, you know, I'm halfway there to what I wanted to lose, I would say. And um, it's really interesting. One thing that that they, that you do with Noom is you weigh yourself every morning. And I... um 
had never owned a scale before. I hadn't weighed myself in, it's just nothing that I've ever done before. And so when I did weigh myself the first time, I was like, okay, I'm like 10 pounds heavier than I thought I was. So now I'm back to where I thought I originally was. Um, But it's interesting because it's like, it gets you in the habit of weighing yourself every morning and seeing how much weight fluctuates. And so like really over the past month, I would say I kind of fluctuated a lot within that 10 pound range, but it's, but I was kind of more on the high end of it. And definitely from this morning, from like the first day I started, I'm probably like 11 or 12 pounds less than where I started. But within this month, I've kind of been ebbing and flowing within that. But then in this past week, I'm really starting to see, um, like stabilizing to some degree at this like lower level. And so that actually feels good. But that not only feels, it feels good to know that we're always fluctuating. And so it's not like a specific number that we're looking for. And that's something that Noom taught me. But also that it's like how you feel in your body, which is like my ultimate goal is like, I just wanted to feel good in my body, in my clothes. You know, I just wanted to feel like, healthy and good. And so I definitely notice a change. And I really do think that Noom has helped me get there. So um, if you want to start building better habits for healthier long-term results, you can sign up for your trial at noom.com slash believe. Again, it's noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash believe, B-L-E-A-V. And I have been also sharing like weekly, like one food that I've really been enjoying that is, um, that has been helping me on this path of getting back to like a healthy body that I'm comfortable in. And so this week's recipe is a tahini salad dressing. And I used to make this all the time and I'm getting back into it and I just love it so much. It's like, it's, you can put it, you don't have to only put it on salad, but it's really good on like rice and roasted vegetables. It makes a really good dipping sauce. It's like really good on chicken. Um, It's just so tasty and it's low calorie for a creamy dressing and it's really high in calcium and minerals. Like sesame seeds are really high in calcium. So it has that added benefit to it as well. And it just tastes really good. And I think that salad dressings um, that we buy on the store are so horrible because so many of them are like hydrogenated oils or like soybean oil or, you know, they just to keep them shelf stable and to keep them kind of tasting good and looking good. They really don't have many health benefits and they tend to be very high calories. So they really can add a really unhealthy aspect to any sort of healthy salad or meal. So I really like to make my own salad dressings and this is a really good one. So basically in a blender, and I don't really measure, I just kind of eyeball things and then adjust to get the final result that I want. So I put a A fair amount, like probably a quarter cup or so of, or even more, quarter cup, half a cup of tahini in a blender. And then I put a celery stick in the blender too, because that like gives it like a nice celery flavor and either a half lemon or a whole lemon um, or vinegar and or vinegar to get that like nice sour flavor, a little bit of oil, olive oil, extra virgin and some water to water it down so that you get the right texture. Like if you want it thicker, then you put less water in it. If you want it thinner, obviously you put more water in it. Um, I really like tamari in there. And then I really like ginger, fresh ginger in there. If you want to go like more on a ginger spicy avenue, but you don't have to. But really the main important ingredients are tahini, lemon, and celery, really. And then some water And then you can kind of add salt or tamari or whatever you like. So, and it's like, I haven't, I used to love to put like cheese, which is like super high calorie 
um, I like to put cheese and all kinds of like really fatty things on my salads or on my plates. And so this is like a perfect alternative. Like you have that creamy, cheesy, umami flavor um, that is like so satiating, but in like a really healthy way. So if you don't already make your own tahini salad dressing, it's super easy and super yummy. Just don't make a huge batch of it because it will turn relatively quickly since it has the water and the raw celery in it. And now let's get back to chaga. So, um, and talking about chaga. So I ended up talking about, you know, where we are getting our information about this plant. Where are we getting the information about the sustainability issues? And a lot of the information we get on this plant is from people who are selling it. And that is a serious problem in the herbalism world, I think, um, and also the aromatherapy world. And because we really need to have a division between people who are selling things and then people who are teaching about them. Because... The people who are teaching about and talking about the sustainability issues need not to be invested in the product, in selling that, what they are talking about. If you want total honesty, total transparency, and trust. And it's just becomes more and more apparent to me all the time. And I know in American herbalism, I mean, really it's actually illegal to sell and tell. Um, But it's really hard to control that. And people, lots of people in the herbal world have gotten in trouble, or at least a hand slap and told that they have to change their ways by the FDA. But it's really hard to manage everyone. You can't. And so a lot of people are selling products that they're also telling you what they can be how they can heal you or, you know, how they are beneficial for you. So that is something that we have to be really cautious of. Um, because let's think about why does everyone want chaga? Like, what's the issue? Like, why is this really almost obscure, really hard, slow growing odd like tree mushroom essentially like so common and a superfood that everyone has to have like it's chaga chai this and chaga chai that and I just it drives me crazy so I think why does everyone want it because of marketing there was someone in the early 2000s who came out with a book that was like chaga king of mushrooms and it was during the time when mushroom medicinal mushrooms were really getting a lot of awareness and popularity around them and then all of a sudden they start marketing this really obscure mushroom that's like really hard to find and you can get a good 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 amount of money for it and if you turn people onto it and it's not something that they can go out and easily harvest and prepare themselves then you've got them hooked you have now a source of income from these people it's unique I, you know, it's like, I think that people, when we think about medicinal herbs or plants or mushrooms, it's like, it just, for whatever reason in our cultural mindset, it just seems like it's going to be more medicinal if it's like not the mundane, you know, if it's not dandelion, if it's chaga, like you got to go like far away and go on a treasure hunt. It's like finding gold, you know? That must be, you know, the miracle cure for everything because there's only a little bit of it and it's really hard to find. Um, Also, I, I honestly think the name, I think it's fun to say. I think it has a ring to it. It's really easy to market. It has some, um, kind of like mystery behind the name and Chaga Chai. I mean, who doesn't want Chaga Chai? That just sounds so good. (laughs) And it's fun to say, and it looks good on a label. And I think it's like a lot of it is marketing. Yes, like chaga does have full body health benefits. And it is um, also known to fight cancer and reduce tumors, like all mushrooms. 
Um, and so it does also have like some really medicinal benefits to it and things that people are wanting in their life. So that is another reason why everyone wants some chaga. But I think it like can be trendy and we have to be really careful in modern herbalism, modern American herbalism, especially is like when we start getting hooked onto these like obscure, trendy, superfood kind of concepts of like, oh, it's a, it's the miracle cure that no one's heard of, but now everyone has access to kind of thing. I know I sound a little jaded and I am like this, this kind of stuff really does rub me wrong. And I, I have a hard time with it because quite honestly, I really think dandelion can do just as about as much <clears throat> good for the body as chaga. It's, it is anti-inflammatory. It supports liver function. It is anti-cancer properties. It lowers blood sugar. It helps people with arthritis. I mean, it's like a full body herb, but like dandelion, really? I mean, people are like, but we spray poisons on those. Like that certainly, it's everywhere. That can't be the miracle cure, right? No, it has to be something that's like really hard to get. I think also there is this really interesting, again, this like cultural mindset around foraging culture and it's almost like people, and I just have seen this anyway in among people that I've connected to or related to, and just the sense that I get from um, amateur foragers or just, you know, people who are interested in living off the land or want some sort of connection to nature or just like the idea of, you know, finding free, healthy things in the wild is like, this whole idea of foraging is like treasure hunting, right? Like we're going to go out on an adventure and we're going to find some like treasure out in the woods where, where we've worked hard for it. We've had to travel far. We've had to had like keen eye to find it, to be able to ID it. And with chaga, you also have to have like a hatchet or a chainsaw or a ladder or a hatchet or a chainsaw or a ladder or you know you have to have some sort of super strength or you have to have you know you have to have some sort of extra foraging ability and it's I think that it's rewarding it like sets off like this like almost this like reward center in the brain like aha like I've done it I've found the gold and I've harvested it. And now what? And I say this because within the past 10 to 15 years since Chaga's like really started seriously booming in popularity, and I live in a place where Chaga grows in small amounts, um, I've had people like friends or acquaintances say, oh, look at this. I just found this Chaga or saying like, oh, yeah you know, this guy, he's like always harvesting chaga and just giving it to me, but I don't even know what to do with it. Or like, you know, a friend coming by and being like, oh yeah, I got this chaga, here you go. And just like giving it to me. And I like, I know that they're not, I, I appreciate the kindness and the thought and the consideration of like, oh, she's an herbalist. She'll want this. Like, that's very kind. And I appreciate that. But at the same time, it's like, I know that they're not herbalists. I know they're not foragers. I know it's just like a hobby or they're just like having fun out in the woods and they're not really taking into consideration the seriousness that I consider of the need to sustainably harvest or even just stay away from chaga or the fact that like there's a lot of other plants and mushrooms that are really common. I mean, maybe you're not going to get a big pat on your back or get like the gold star forager award if you go out and harvest a bunch of dandelions from your backyard. But you will get the sustainability award. <laughs> so I don't know, it this obviously frustrates me a little bit. And just the fact that it's like, anyone out there that really doesn't have understandings about 
chaga and the importance of its growth cycle and life cycle um, are just out there hacking away at it. And chaga has been disappearing from woods. It might not be disappearing from like the great northern Russian birch woods, boreal forests, but it's disappearing from places where it's not growing as abundantly. And I say that it's not growing. Um, I, I use that example of Russia because in my research, I found like this website that was like, and of course they were selling mushrooms, but they were say, they said, oh, chaga, has, there's no sustainability issues around chaga. And they cited a scientific paper that came out in 2004. So that's almost 20 years ago saying that they had like gone out and like done a survey of the chaga in the Russian woods and found that that there was no way that we could possibly harvest all of the chaga to meet the demands of the world. Um, other people say, well, you know, we might not be we might not harvest all the chaga to death, but it will get harder and harvest harder and harder to harvest the chaga because we have to go further away to find it and deeper into the woods, and that's going to cost more time and money and effort, and therefore the cost of chaga is going to go up, um, which will make it harder and less available for people. So, which also. I mean, is that really the perspective that we want to take when we're when we're like foraging for a plant that is wild? Um, so what are some ways that we can sustainably uh, forage for chaga or harvest it? And it, can we grow it? So sustainable practices... Um, People that say they are sustainably harvesting chaga, they will take a portion of the chaga um, conch, like a third of it and not the whole thing. And it can regrow, especially if you don't take the whole thing or if you don't like dig it out of the tree. Um, and so different people have different levels that they'll harvest that they claim to be sustainable. And they'll say, well, in five to 10 years, it will regrow which is kind of a long time if you think about it for like a growth cycle of like, well, I took like a third of this, of this mushroom conch from this tree and I'll be able to go back in five years to that same tree and harvest another small portion. You know, it's like, really? I mean, how much are you really harvesting? And is that, and then it's going to take five years for that, for that part to regrow. And they're not killing it, so then if the tree does die, it will still have the ability to, to, to produce spores and reproduce. But if you, were to dig, if you were to totally cut the chaga out of the tree, then it wouldn't regrow and it wouldn't have the chance to create spores. So in that sense, yes, that, and maybe if you're doing small-scale harvesting, and then if you harvest only from a portion of the population, so if you go to a birch grove and you see like, oh, there's like a bunch of chaga in this one birch grove, I'm just going to harvest, you know, a small percentage of this because then maybe in the next birch grove over, there isn't going to be any chaga because again, it's, you know, its life cycle is really challenged versus like the birch polypore which is the shelf mushroom that's on birches a lot and has a lot of the similar uh, benefits that chaga has. But it's way more abundant. You can see multiple ones on one tree. And it's just, that is kind of the more ubiquitous birch um, conch mushroom. And then when you're harvesting, you don't you have to also consider like the world population and not just your local population. And then also like where the chaga is coming from and are they really sustainably harvesting them? If you're not harvesting it yourself, where are you getting it from? And then what is the effect on that ecosystem? And then what is it based on then how much of the, like how many people are ingesting chaga and working with it and using it? And then can the population that 
that we see in the world really truly support that over the long haul. There is, I did read that someone found that they could promote chaga growth by taking a small part of the conch and because it has mycelium in that chaga conch and cutting a hole in a birch tree and then putting the chaga plug in the birch tree and that it would grow chaga. And so you could potentially, you know, expand a chaga population. But again, it's like a long-term plan because it would be maybe 20, 15, 10, 10 at the minimum years before you have a harvestable chaga from that plug. And not only that, but then you're harming the tree and you're harming your whole birch stand if you were to like put a plug in every birch. So that has to be done like really cautiously and not just willy nilly. Again, we don't really want to be playing God here. Um, There's also people who are growing the mycelium, just plain, just the mycelium of chaga. So you don't actually have the conch, but you have the mycelium that's growing in like on a grain um, base. And so that is an option that people are exploring. However, you don't have some of the main medicinal constituents that are found in like the birch chaga because the chaga is actually like getting constituents from the birch tree um, that are medicinal and like concentrating them. So that is something that people are working with and talking about um, as a sustainable option and how you could actually grow chaga. And I would say if you happen, and this is not going to be common, but if you happen to know a birch stand that has chaga in it that is going to be developed and all of the trees are going to be cut down anyway and removed from the property, then you can obviously harvest all of that chaga because it's going to be killed anyway. But that's going to be rare, especially when we're talking about like northern boreal forests where not, not a lot of people are living or developing anyway. So these are all considerations. And so I hope that I'm really painting this picture for you in kind of a convoluted way, but of like, you know, this is not an easy, like, just go out and harvest as much as you want and it's going to be fine. It's going to take a long time for this to like regrow. It's such a slow growing mushroom. And also, um, not only is it slow growing, but it's interesting to see. And I find this with other forest plants that are medicinal that we have harvested to be endangered uh, in their wild populations like American ginseng, golden seal, um, all of these like slow growing perennial plants that live far away from humans in the forest. You know, at first they were like, oh, we, you know, the, the 20 year ginseng root, like that's the standard, the gold standard, like the older the root, the better the quality, the better the medicine. And as time has gone on, it's like, well, the 10 year root, that's good. That's like mature enough. That's what we can harvest. And then it's like the five year root. And now it's like, well, if you can find like a three year ginseng root, or you can harvest harvest the perennial root after three years, and that's good. You know, as the demand grows and the population depletes, our gold standard also depletes so that it matches, so that we are now saying, oh, like, we can harvest a chaga that's, like, only five years old, and we can harvest, like, a portion of that, and it will be fine, versus when we were first working and harvesting with chaga, it was like, you waited until that chaga was mature, and the tree was almost going to fall, and you waited for that 20-year-old, like, four-foot big chaga chunk that you would then harvest a portion of. And so, and as I was reading different people's websites, it was really interesting to see the change in like, 
oh, yeah, you know, you can go back and harvest after like three years or five years or, you know, it's like that's really subjective and it changes over time. And so that's something to also really keep an eye on is how our gold standard for what we can sustainably harvest changes as the population declines and as the demand grows. So let's talk a little bit about um, the chemistry of chaga and maybe what we could replace, what we, where we could find some of these other constituents, like what we could substitute for chaga in our lives. So the interesting, there are some really interesting um, constituents that we think are really provide some of the medicinal properties of chaga. Um, And two of them are actually found, or more than two of them, but two of the most popular ones are found in birch bark itself. So so the botanical name of birch is betula, B-E-T-U-L-A. And usually if we find constituents, the first plant that we find the constituent in kind of gets named after the plant that we discover it in. So even though the constituents could be found in other plants throughout nature, um, it still kind of holds the name of the plant that we first discover it in. So there is betulin and betulinic acid, which um, is a metabolite of the betulin. So these are both found in birch bark. They're triterpenes. Well, the betulin is a triterpene and the betulinic acid is a triterpenoid. And so the betulin is really known to be anti-tumor, anti-cancer, and that both the betulin and betulinic acid are found in the outer black edge of the chaga. So they're not even, I mean, if you look at a chaga, there's like the crumbly black edge on the outside, and then the inside is like an amber gold kind of woody substrate. And so this more of this like anti-cancer, anti-tumor property of the betulin is found on the outside of that chaga. It's not like the main part of the chaga conch itself. And then the betulinic acid, also found in that black part, is antibacterial, antiviral, anti-inflammatory. It helps to uh, kill HIV and is antioxidant. So those two constituents are also, as I said, found in birch bark, Um, We don't want to be ripping off birch bark from trees, and it has to be living bark. But you could potentially make a tincture with birch bark, um, like from a branch of the birch tree, uh, and get these same properties. So these are more alcohol-soluble. So you would get these more from like a chaga tincture than a chaga tea or decoction. Then there's also uh, lupiol which is another triterpene that's found in birch bark and chaga. And that's also anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial. And then there are polysaccharides, right? So polysaccharides are these long chain sugars that are found in a lot of different plants and all mushrooms and all seaweed and are so beneficial for supporting the immune system on the whole. Betulin is also concentrated in birch sap, which you could drink. I've heard of people tapping birch trees, but again, like the wounds of birch, that when you drill into the birch, it doesn't heal as well as maple trees when you're tapping for maple sap. And so that's something to really um be cautious of, and I don't think it's necessarily recommended for the health of the tree to actually tap for birch sap, from what I hear. So we, I have mentioned multiple times already in this podcast, the birch polypore, which is the shelf mushroom, which is way more commonly found, at least where I am, than chaga, and and in larger quantities, and it is the fruiting body of the mushroom itself that is the conch. And 
It contains many of the same medicinal compounds as chaga, notably the triterpenes. Um, it's lower in the betulin, but it is higher in the lupiol and is definitely loaded in polysaccharides. So that seems to me like it would be more of a sustainable option because you can harvest like one polypore from a tree and there'll be more of the birch polypores on that same tree. And it's like the fruiting body, but the mycelium is still in the tree and it can easily grow more fruiting bodies too. Also, this betulenic acid, the triterpene, is that's that is more of like the antibacterial, antiviral, anti-inflammatory, and antioxidant property is found in self-heal, prunella vulgaris, which is a very common, very common lawn weed, and then also in rosemary. So if you're going for like the antioxidant, like antimicrobial immune supporting properties of the chaga, let's just, why don't we just have rosemary tea or self-heal tincture or rosemary tincture? I guess we'd want the tincture to get the, the betulinic acid, ideally from those herbs, because it's more soluble in alcohol than water. <clears throat> so those are some alternatives. And then I guess also, what was I reading? The um, alder Alder trees and alder bark also has a lot of this betulinic and betulin um, in it, betulinic acid. So those are some things to consider. Like, I really just want to, can we just like leave the chaga alone so that when we have tumors and cancers that are really hard to fight, that we have chaga for those like really serious health conditions, or if we have like liver disease. But let's not use chaga as just like a daily tonic for health because we have so many other common weeds that we can easily harvest and forage and so many other common garden plants that we can easily har harvest and forage that we can work with in that way. And let's just save the chaga for for when we really need it. And that's what I've done when people have given me chaga. I have saved it and it's going to last. I mean, it's basically wood. Um, so I have it set aside for when either myself or a loved one is going to be in dire need of some chaga. Now, the other thing that I want to talk about is how how do we prepare chaga? This is the other thing that drives me crazy is like when people just throw chaga willy nilly into stuff so that they can give it the name chaga so that they can sell it, whether they are, you know, just like powdering it and putting it in a small amount of something. Um, or if we are, um, you know, putting it in chaga chai and you're just going to like simmer your chaga chai for 20 minutes and then drink it, like you're probably really not getting the benefits of chaga. Because chaga is a mushroom and most dried mushrooms take a long time to extract. You have to simmer them for like 24 hours, really, if you really want to get the medicinal benefit or put it in a crock pot. Um, or you can... Um, you can simmer it and then drink that and then simmer it again. And like you can use your same chunk of chaga that you have, like a, that you've cut up somehow with like a chisel <laughs> or a axe um, in small chunks. And then you can like cook that down. And uh, you could, you can do like 10 different times where you cook it down and drink it until you aren't getting any color or flavor left from your drink. So if you do have chaga and if you insist on working with it, then at least get the most you possibly can from that bit that you have. Um, also, let's really consider, um, you know, some people powder it and eat it that way. But also like for anti-cancer and anti-tumor, they're really finding that mushrooms work best in synergy with, with themselves. 
with each other. So like usually it's a complex of mushrooms that people will ingest or multiple mushrooms. And it can be any kind of mushroom. Like reishi mushroom is another mushroom that has a lot of similar properties to chaga. Although I think that there are probably some sustainability issues with that as well, though it is easier to grow uh, than chaga and has a better life cycle to work with. So all of this being said, like we really need to know about the plants that we're harvesting. So this is why I really, really don't want people to buy commercialized chaga products and to really find locally weedy, easy to forage alternatives until like we really need something like chaga until it's like really important Um, and because soon we're all just going to be ingesting it willy nilly. And then when we really need it, it won't be there for us. And I would love for you to take this kind of this podcast episode and then really use these concepts of how we think about foraging, uh, plants and mushrooms and extrapolate it toward all all foraging in plants and mushrooms. Like, what are we really doing here? What are the benefits? Why are we, why do we need like some far away, distant nugget of gold when we can have the nickels and dimes that are in abundance right out in our backyard that ultimately add up to more than that nugget of gold? And Let's really, now more than ever, it's really important that we focus on sustainable harvesting and really focus on working with the medicinal and highly nutritious and highly beneficial mundane weeds that are growing in abundance right outside our back door than these trendy hard to find, hard to access, need to buy commercialized, rare medicinal plants and mushrooms. So thank you so much for tuning in once again. Thank you for joining me for my, oh, slightly heated rant today. But I really hope that maybe you'd already thought of these things, but maybe I've opened your eyes a bit. Um, not only to chaga, but to all foraging practices. Also check out episodes seven and eight of the Healthier Podcast if you want to hear more about proper wild crafting and wild harvesting and foraging. So I would love, you know, it's been a while since anyone has rated and written a little review for the podcast, and I've had a lot of new listeners Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. And if you appreciate me and the information I'm putting out there in this podcast, I would love for you just to take like 30 seconds or a minute and just write a quick little review. Um, It doesn't have to be much of anything, but it really just helps the algorithms, you know, put this podcast um, more in visible places in the search engines. So I would really appreciate that. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, my website, um, where you can check me out, contact me, say hi. I love to hear from listeners, all with the tag Solidago Herb School. And again, thanks so much for listening. I'm Bridget Doherty. Until next week, be well, let intuition guide you. And have fun with herbs, especially the mundane and common herbs. And let's leave chaga alone.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.